are listening to a message from Oaks Church, Brooklyn. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in our city. For more information on our church and community, please visit oaksbk.church. passage comes from Galatians 5, 7 through 15. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? What kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you? A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As as for those agitators, I wish that they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. Feels like it's been a minute. Um, Thank you, Meredith, for that teaching text. Sorry that you got the emasculation one. <laughs> what are you going to do? Uh, if you've been here these last couple of weeks, you know we've been in the series Free People. This is a study of Galatians 5, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a second, but I want to just kind of pull you back even further. See, this series is coming actually at the end of an arc that we've been on for the last six months since January, and that's a threefold arc where we've been first unpacking the stories that we've been living. Secondly, we've been looking at how we can uh, examine the stories that we are living. I think I said that wrong. Let me back up. Tenses are incorrect. We've been unpacking the stories that we've lived. There we go. We did that through that deconstruction series where we're going backwards in orders to go forward. And then as we moved and we, we settled into that, that exploration of sin using the Genesis narratives, we're moving into that second fold of that arc, which is examining the stories that we were living and asking ourselves, is the way in which we're living and the God in whom we're serving, is it working for us? Or have we gotten off course? And then this third arc that we are now ending here in this series is perceiving the invitations of God into the stories he wants to tell. So unpacking the stories we've lived, examining the stories that we're living, and then now perceiving the invitation into the stories that God wants to tell. And this is where we find ourselves in Galatians 5 and in this series called Free People. And I'm going to unpack a little bit more about the reasons why we chose this particular uh, passage and this particular theme. But one of the top ones that I'll give you right now is that this, this passage really encapsulates, I think, all of that, that threefold arc here in what Paul is doing in this letter to the churches at Galatia. 
And here's what I mean by that. If you were here the first week, you heard that Gemma gave us kind of the history of the letter itself. And we have these churches among which there's this small sect of Jews called the Judaizers who are pushing this gospel plus, this gospel plus circumcision as a way to be sanctified and justified before the Lord. And, and then Paul is kind of pushing back on that in, in, in this letter. And then if you were here last week, Chris kind of gave us the background on Paul, the author, author of this letter, who was writing not only as the founder of this church, but he himself much born in the fashion of those Judaizers. He was a strict Pharisaical man, obedient to the Levitical law, which was founded on and instituted under the sacrament of, of circumcision. And so Paul knew circumcision very well, but that was no longer his belief that this is what calls us forward. And so the law has been fulfilled in Jesus. And so he's calling them out of that to examine this new gospel, this gospel that's been fulfilled, the law that's been fulfilled in Jesus. And today, when we talk about unpacking the stories we live in, we're going to look at kind of the, the people themselves that are receiving this letter and the stories that they've lived. See, this church, these churches in Galatia were a mix of, of former Orthodox Jews, now in term Messianic, and these new Gentiles that are being swept into this faith. And they're both trying to follow Jesus, but they're running into this familiar problem, which is becoming new in Jesus redeems our past, but it doesn't erase it. Maybe you know this. See, for the Greeks, this means coming out of these former faiths, these Hellenistic views of, 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 of gods and, and this... Uh, plural, this plurality of, of deities, and they're coming into this new faith of this, this monotheistic religion founded in, in this, this Jewish itinerant preacher who supposedly was God and died, and rumor says has come back to life. And they're trying to leave behind these old patterns of living. And they're really wanting to do whatever is necessary to serve this God. And this is kind of hard, though, because you're coming from religions that had practices. These gods ask you to do something to appease them. And so it is natural in their way of viewing to realize that this new God must have his own requirements of them to be found right. And yet, they're being invited into a faith that does not require them to work out their salvation, but to receive their salvation. And so that becomes altogether a little confusing, and they're trying to find their way. And so when these Judaizers come, with this, this action, here's what you got to do. Believe and then get circumcised. Well, I mean, it kind of makes sense, maybe. I can see. And so they're calling out to Paul, and Paul is getting word of this. Now, for the Jews, they too have a past that's been redeemed but not erased. See, they come from a long lineage of partnership with God as his chosen people. They were given a law that base their righteousness in. And so they had to literally work out their salvation through sacrifice and obedience. And so for them now, they are being called by the same God to set down the ways of old, the ways of, of sacrament and, and, and obedience to this, these rules and these laws to walk in faith through Christ that he has fulfilled what the law could not do. And this for them is also kind of weird. So of course they're trying to bring forward some of those things they knew. Circumcision was a sign of my affirmation before the Lord. And now I have to give it up? Now it actually doesn't mean anything? 
So circumcision, again, is at the crux of these two realities. The Gentiles are, being cons- are considering being circumcised with the Jewish brothers, and this vocal minority are insisting that they must, and everyone's kind of at odds, and so Paul gets word of all this ascension that is happening, and he reaches back out. And we're going to get into that in a second, but I don't want this talk of circumcision to distance us from what is being said here, because I think most of us know this tension. Maybe some of us come from a background that wasn't distinctly Christian or even spiritual. And maybe we've been shaped by a society at large, or even the particular context of this city in which we live, which preaches worth via production. And so the idea of worth being in Jesus seems altogether lacking and too easy to be substantive. Gemma talked about in this the first uh, week about how we can have this gospel, this, this cultural gospel of, of self-exaltation and, and, and self-satisfaction, right? That I will become my own God and I will kind of work to curate this life that I want. And it makes sense that there's some things that I have to do to be good before the Lord. But ultimately, these are things that are within my control. Or as Katya talked about the week before, God, you can come in, but don't touch that. I will do this for you, but I won't do that. As long as I feel like I'm being productive, I'm a good person. Then I should be good, right? So maybe we understand kind of the, the, the plight of these Gentiles. But maybe also identify with these Jewish leaders. Maybe you've been like me, born into this faith tradition and You haven't had a free Sunday until COVID started. But you feel guilty about that because you know that he knows and he's getting ready for judgment that when you tell someone that, oh, I haven't made it back in, but I've been just watching the live stream, that you really mean, if you think about it, you put the YouTube on while you do dishes from last night and brush your teeth and get ready for uh, the best brunch in Brooklyn spot you Googled, you know? And so it feels like, oh gosh, I've got all these things I have to do. I haven't made it into the service. I haven't done my quiet time. I haven't had these practices, right? And so we've built up this faith that you know what it looks like, or so you think. There are these actions that you haven't been doing and so they weigh on you. And you feel like you've got you've to bring these actions, these practices back into life or else you can't be right before God. And so you've been holding yourself and others to this impossible standard that in a weird way makes this faith familiar because there's something about these practices that are good, but also makes this faith foul because it doesn't seem like this should be just about doing these things that don't really serve you when your heart's not in them. Does that make sense? So these people that we're reading about, these people that this letter is written to, aren't that distinct from us. Maybe you're a shade of both or neither. But the thought that Paul is evoking evoking for the churches of Galatia, and the question for us today is this, what gospel have you been given? What Jesus do you know? I ask again, what gospel... Have you you been given, when you unpack your life and your journey into faith, what gospel have you been given? Is it one of striving? 
Is it one of facade, being a good person? Is it one of scarcity? I don't have enough, and I won't have enough if I give myself to you, Lord, and so I've got to hold back. I got to, this world's too broken, so I got to just collect all the goodness that I can and whatever makes me happy, and that's just what I got to store. And I can't give of myself to people or to community because I'll get lost in it. I don't know if Jesus is enough. What gospel have you been given? What Jesus do you know? Does he stand over you in condemnation and shame? Does he stand over you with unrealistic expectations? This is the quandary that this early churches are finding themselves in. And so Paul's writing this urgent letter to remind them, as their spiritual father, what exactly they were founded on. They weren't founded on all these other gospels, this gospel plus circumcision. No, the gospel that he founded this church on was the fulfillment of the law was found in Christ's death and resurrection for our salvation and freedom. They're free to run. This is how he set them off in following Jesus. Go be free. For freedom, you have been set free. And so when we come into today's text, we're picking up Galatians 5 right here at verse 7. And this is what Paul says to them. He says, you were running a good race. Remember when I founded this church and we set you off in the freedom of the gospel that is not built on, on anything that you've done, lest you should boast, but is the free gift of God? Remember that? You were running in that. And now who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? He says that kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. Paul often uses this, this, this racing metaphor uh, throughout his, his letters. And I think this metaphor here is, is both, it's, it's a subtle one, but also an apt picture of, of what he's talking about with this, this aspect of salvation. See, Paul, Paul uses this, this language to a church of, of Greeks and Jews, and for the Greeks, this really, this really hits them square. But for the Greeks, next to the amphitheater and the gladiators and next to the theater and the, and the plays that they put on, the stadion or the track was, was the highest uh, avenue of, of cultural values. The Olympics were huge cultural markers. And no greater uh, event was found than the stadia, which was the running, was the races. And so when Paul brings this metaphor of running a good race, the thing about Greeks in this time, when they ran, they ran naked. <laughs> um, you know, was, I thought racing was not, running was not for me. That is definitely not for me. But, uh, so they would run naked, covered in olive oil. This is a true thing. And there was this belief around racing and this running before the Lord, that when they trained, when the Greeks trained for, for, for races, they, they embarked upon this holistic training, not just the body, but the mind and spirit. This was, this was also, this was them honoring and giving duty to Zeus and their gods. And so the stadium would also have an altar where like a goddess of Demeter, uh, uh, a, a young woman who was kind of the, the, kind of the corollary for their God would, would stand over watch. And so this running was also a practice of honoring their gods with their whole bodies. 
unencumbered, glistening. And so when Paul says you were running a good race, you were free. There was nothing on you in this gospel. And now here comes someone in this race that's cutting you off, that's cutting in on you, that's threatening to knock you off course. But this is not what you've been called to. I think it's apt again that he points to they're running this race in the gospel that is calling them, the gospel that is, that is threatening to be a stumbling block to them, isn't happening in front of them, but it's happening beside them. It's happening from people running the race beside them. And he makes this contrast that the gospel you should be following is the one that comes from apart from you, that is distinct from you, that is leading you forward. This extra gospel from this person like you what gospel, what, how have they been entrusted to say what the gospel is? God, the, the gospel that Paul preaches comes from the Lord himself. Paul believes and espouses. And so trust the gospel that calls you forward, not this one that cuts in on you and threatens to undo you. We're called to run an unencumbered, free race, and honor to our God with our whole selves. This metaphor does nothing for the Jewish people. Uh, one, uh, because of Levitical law, Jewish people, you weren't just nude or naked around people. And so they did not take part in these races. Uh, one, because of the nudity, but two, because it was in service to these foreign gods. So Paul making this metaphor to the gospel, using this imagery of something that, that they find offensive, is, is really subtly profane. It's a little detestable that this is the metaphor he would use. I don't think Paul is ignorant of this. Honestly, I think there's an, an, an argument that can be made that there's some intentional provocation. We skip down to verse 11. Paul says this. He says, brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. So Paul, again, being one of these former Jews, he knows very well how important circumcision was under the Levitical rule. And now under Jesus, as he says, circumcised or uncircumcised, it doesn't really matter. It's about faith expressing itself in love. And so now he's dismissing his former ways and he's saying that, hey, if I had been telling people that, if I want to give people this like free pass, but I can't. I know that you're saying, hey, what's the big deal? Let me have this piece of the gospel. Let me add on this little piece of circumcision. But Paul is like, hey, I'm getting, it would be easy for me to give you this gospel plus. I would stop getting emails. <laughs> These Judaizers would get off my back and stop, stop running me around and causing problems for me. They keep persecuting me. But I won't allow this false gospel because honestly, it's too easy. And the real gospel creates an offense. I mean, 
If you're willing to get circumcised, I mean, why should I stop you? The Jews are happy. I mean, the Greeks aren't happy, but there's unity. He could just let it slide. But Paul is fastidious about the gospel being founded in Jesus alone. And so he refuses to give them this gospel light. Because the gospel is offensive. This is something that we see time and again. Paul, when he writes to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 1.23, he says, But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a cause for stumbling, but to the Gentiles foolishness. It's hard to swallow this faith by grace. Particularly for the Jewish people. You see, the Levitical law was a deposit on a payment made full by Jesus. And we can oftentimes beat up on the Judaizers. But I want to give them some grace because it was God who taught them circumcision. Genesis 17 on the Abrahamic covenant, God comes down to Abraham and said, I'm going to give you, I'm going to make you a great and mighty nation. I will be your God and you will be my people and here will be the sign that in your bodies you will be circumcised, each person of your house. So God institutes circumcision as a sign that they are his people. And that system carries forward for hundreds of years. And then there's 400 years of silence after the prophets. And so they're left alone trying to find their way. And so they make up all these rules in the gap. They have 636 laws that they must obey. And then after they've established the system to ensure that they're right, in comes this Jesus who throws the whole thing away. But not really. He doesn't throw it away. He, he, he just turns it on its head. And he becomes the circumcision. He becomes the one cut off that they may live. So it's really hard for them to let that go. And so what was a gift of God, circumcision, a sign of their faith, now is starting to feel like a curse. And how could that be? I could see how that'd be confusing. There's this uh, concept in psychoanalysis called repression. You've, I'm sure it's not novel to you. You've heard of it before. And oftentimes we talk about repression as, um, you know, it can be in the negative in a lot of time that someone's Repressed, and you have all these repressed things. But, but really, repression starts as, as a gift from the Lord. What repression does is it allows us, when we face trauma that is too heavy to hold, it allows us to disassociate, to put it aside, to not engage it, for such a time as our mental, emotional, and physical faculties can give us the tools to engage with our trauma in a healthy way. It's a down payment on a piece. So we just saw in Uvalde, Texas, where these, these kids horribly massacred. And there are two teachers, and one of the husbands goes to the memorial, and he comes home, and he has a heart attack because he can't handle the trauma. The same almost happens to an 11-year-old child who lost her friends because she can't handle the trauma. And so repression serves as a gift to give ourselves some temporary reprieve but here's the problem. But if we try to live in the repression, it ultimately spoils because repression doesn't actually heal the trauma. It only puts it aside. And so if we have trauma from maybe our childhood, maybe you understand this, maybe you've had an experience with someone that you trusted and they, 
They, they, they denigrated your body with their words or, or their callousness towards you, and that gave you some trauma. And maybe you don't remember the exact memories of the moments, but you find yourself now living in such a way where you're constantly trying to uh, deny the body that you're in. You're constantly trying to, 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 to use it in a way that sanctifies it, but is altogether broken. You don't really remember the exact way, the reason in the moment that you got broken, but the brokenness is still there. Because the trauma, that moment has been locked away. But it hasn't been healed. This is where repression becomes a curse. We have to put it down. We have to gain the tools to then successfully be able to go into those, those traumatic moments that we've experienced and to unpack them before the Lord that provides healing for us and that allows us then to live with them, aware of what they've done, aware of how it affected us, but no longer controlling our lives. Repression doesn't heal us. It just holds us until we can seek true healing. The law is like that. What the law did was it showed the Jews who God was, distinct and holy, above them, but wanting to know them. And it also showed them clearly who they were, incapable of staying right, constant screw-ups, broken, in need of something outside of themselves to sanctify them. But the law was not ever meant to heal them. It was a temporary gift to help them see soberly so that they could develop the tools to recognize Jesus when they saw him. And when they saw him, they knew then the fullness of their healing. And they could then walk in Jesus and find the true healing that the law could not provide. And so after Jesus, when they reject him and they keep going back to the law, then what they're ultimately doing is making a gift a curse. And then they're trying to call that dysfunction and put that dysfunction onto others. And this is the problem that we have. And so it's hard. It's hard when we have to let go of the things that was once a gift. It felt really good to be able to do with my body whatever I wanted. It felt really good to spend my money however I pleased. I mean, it ultimately was a little destructive, but, you know, there were some good times. And so now the thought of coming into a faith that calls me out of that, that's scary. More than scary, it seems foolish. Which leads us to the question, what Jesus are you walking with? And what gospel are you living in? Is it a comfortable one? High on affirmation, low on alteration? Is it a deforming one that highlights your insufficiency and never speaks of the incredible love shown to you? This we have to examine. The truth is offensive. The gospel is offensive. But kind of in the way a kid taking medicine. It's kind of yucky. But it's so healing. And you kind of learn to like it. Once you, you appreciate it. 
it, it kind of maybe, you know, maybe you need to add a little sugar in it. But as we take this medicine, it actually starts to heal us. And so we become thankful for this gospel that sets us free. About two hours north of here, there's this, uh, this little town called Rifton, New York. It's uh, just south of Woodstock. And late, uh, late 1700s, there's a woman there uh, named Isabella Bomfrey. She was born. Uh, she was born a slave. Um, so she's born into captivity, and uh, she's passed along to multiple slave owners, and she uh, experiences all the atrocities that you know of that were perpetrated through the slave trade. And along the way, she has these five children, one of which, um, just via the abuse of her enslaver, and she... Uh, there's this movement, this abolition movement moving through New York. And so it is soon in the, the early 1800s that she's going to be freed through legislation. But uh, she can't wait for that. And her boss, her boss, her enslaver had actually told her that she would be free. But then he reneged on that promise. And so she, one day, just walked. She took her, she took her infant daughter. She had to leave her, her other four kids. She couldn't take them with her. And she left. And she made her way to this, this Quaker, uh, this Quaker family, this couple, and they took her in. And, uh, and they also even made it such that the enslaver would not pursue her. And then they, they told her about this Jesus. And she has this, like, incredible moment of, of revelation before the Lord where this, this, this God reveals himself to her and calls her to be his messenger. And so she, she accepts and she receives it. And she has this call to go speak his truth and become a preacher. And so she leaves and she sets out to become a preacher to people and tell them about the gospel of Jesus and not just slaves, but to every person. She, she talks truth to power. And this gospel that she believes in, she's illiterate, but she has memorized so much of the scriptures. Uh, this gospel then not just stays with, with, with this, this soul, but also the body. And so as a former slave, she says, she starts to speak out against slavery. She becomes this abolitionist. But not just an abolitionist, because she believes, hey, as a woman, I also have rights that are being denied to me just for the fact that I'm a woman. And she gives this, this great speech, I am a woman. And she talks about how, hey, I see these men and, and they say they got to like open the doors for women and they got to help them across the mud. But no one's ever done that for me. Am I not a woman? Right. And so then she also takes up the rights of women. And so she's she's this. Uh, women's right advocate, this abolitionist, and she's going around literally speaking truth to power. Actually, she is the first black woman to ever successfully win a court case uh, against a white man, uh, which may sound to some of you like, what the big deal? Uh, historically, uh, that would get you killed. Um, and she actually sued the enslaver of one of her sons who had been illegally sold and so she took this to the New York Supreme Court, and under, the, under the, the legislation that prohibited the selling of slaves, she was able to get her son back. And then she sets off, speaking truth to power. She met three presidents, became a figure in the Civil War, sending off and incorporating men to go fight for the freedom of others. She would stand in front of these high places, and she would call slavery for what it was, 
an absolute evil. She would call the oppression of women for what it was, a pox on our society. She spoke this offensive gospel to those in power. She lived about 105. She died in Battle Creek, Michigan. And you can still go there. There's a tombstone. It's a huge tombstone. Uh, and on it, it, it has her name, which is uh, actually the name that she took on uh, after she had this revelation of God, Sojourner Truth. Um, and so, so Sojourner Truth says so she's a former slave. And then at the very last line, there's a sign that says, Is God dead? Very weird. <laughs> Why is that on your tombstone? Uh, this is actually a phrase she said, uh, to Frederick Douglass, a fellow abolitionist. They met in Ohio once, and Frederick Douglass was so frustrated with, with the, the slackness and the slowness by which the abolition movement was coming to its fullness that he started to preach and he started to teach of, of, of freedom by any means necessary, that if necessary by force, slaves should, should revolt. To that, Sojourner Truth tells her fellow abolitionists, is God dead? And by this she means, do we not serve the God of the Israelites who in Exodus tells them to wait and that he is going to free them in his due time? That is really hard to hear. She believed in the gospel of Philemon before these slave owners. Philemon is this, this utterly abolitionist text. It's one letter, and it's Paul's, it's this, it's Paul's call uh, for Philemon to release Onesimus, his slave. As a, and to receive him as his brother. And so she believes that slavery is wrong, but she also believes in this gospel of 1 Peter, 1 Peter 2, where Peter tells slaves to endure and to not push back, even against harsh, harsh enslavers. Because in doing so, they become in the manner of a Jesus who, when he was, when he was wrongly beaten, he suffered because he knew that God was doing something. That's tough, man. That's really tough. It's offensive, honestly, is what it is. But this is the gospel that Sojourner Truth believed in. It's offensive all around. First Peter 2.8, Paul actually writes in that letter, Peter writes in that letter, he says, a stone, speaking of Jesus, Jesus is the cornerstone a stone that can cause people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. But it's not just for the evil, it's for the good too. It's impossible for us to have this view of the gospel if we are the writer, producer, and the star of the life we're living. And I get it. The thoughts of being a bit player in God's story seems like a non-starter. It's like turning down being a townsperson on Schitt's Creek <laughs> when you can have your very own web series on Daily Motion. And I say Daily Motion because some of us would be so lucky to be on YouTube. Most of our lives has lived in the obscurity of like these backwoods web channels. You know what I'm saying? I don't know if you like Schitt's Creek. I, I thought it was great. Uh, and, uh, but this, it's a sitcom these fish out of water these rich people end up becoming poor and buying a town, all this stuff but if you watch it, if you watched it there's this documentary after the series <clears throat> and what's interesting is uh, it kind of it 
shows how everyone who worked on the show, from the costume designer to the writers to the actors, they kind of became this family. And even if they were doing the bit parts, they felt wrapped up into something bigger than themselves. And then when you hear the letters of people who were able to kind of locate themselves in this story, and this story actually gave them some vision of life, you could see how you could get swept up in that. And that's just a TV show. But I think it's an apt picture of what God is trying to do. When he calls you into being a bit player, it's not because he's trying to crush you. It's not because he's trying to, to limit you to, the, to the, the back. No, it's because he's telling this bigger story of which we all play a different role. It's his story. That's the invitation for us. The band's going to come back up and we're wrapping up. The reality is we chose this series to end this art because I think the cultural seduction that Gemma talked about in the first week isn't out in the world, but I think it's here among us. And what I mean by that, I get to spend a lot of time with us. And what I've given witness to is there's a, a gentle seduction of a crafting of a new gospel, one that removes all our stumbling blocks, where I live how I want, where peace and desire equals permission to do as I please. And I think the invitation of the Lord is out of this insidious gospel that eventually leads to destruction. Paul writes in verse 9, a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. Throughout the scriptures, yeast, leaven, is a standing for evil and sin. So how this works is, it starts with a simple thing. I believe that I can do X because I want to, and this is the gospel that I abide by. Maybe it's something innocuous. I don't really need faithful community. I don't need people to share this faith of mine. It may be too painful. And so we don't. And then we craft a gospel that's individualistic and devoid of community and people that love us who are at times for, with, and against us. And then this gospel sours because that's not the gospel Jesus invited us into. And then that starts to leak out among us And we begin to consume each other. This is what Paul says at the end of our text. We'll begin to eat each other. Because if the Lord of the universe and his offered sacrifice can be bent to my satisfaction, then why can't you? Why won't you? So our relational conflicts don't find resolution and they sour. We distance ourselves from those who would speak truth into our lives. And we can begin to treat this community as a weekly sermon listening club. And not the day in and day out family that God is trying to form us into. And by that I don't mean kumbaya. I, I mean family in the sense of we get into the mess with each other and we fail each other and we find the way back to each other. We love each other when we say the wrong things. We admonish each other in love. We encourage one another. 
we remind each other of our standing in Christ. The invitation of Jesus is not a trite one of following rules, but it's a freedom of self. So the last thing I'm going to end with, there's this writer, theologian, Frederick Beekner. I highly recommend him. We talked about repression earlier. Repression is one of many defense mechanisms that we use to keep ourselves safe. But he says this about repression left too long when the gift becomes a curse. He says, the interstate you end up with is a castle-like affair of keep, inner wall, outer wall, and moat, which you erect originally to be a fortress to keep the enemy out, but which in turn, but which turns into a prison where you become the jailer and thus your own enemy. It is a wretched and lonely place. You can't be what you want to be there or do what you want to do. People can't see through all that masonry to who you truly are. And half the time, you're not sure you can see who you truly are yourself. You've been walled up so long. Friends, I believe that in this season of our church, the invitation of Jesus is to come behind the walls we've erected to protect ourselves or to make this gospel palatable and to enter the world in which he strengthens us for and navigates us through that allows us to enter into healthy relationships with the people in the world around us. Holiness, holiness is not about rules. Freedom, freedom is not, it's not best understood by what we can do. It's best understood by what we don't have to do. We no longer have to be slaves to sin and these gifts gone sour. That's the invitation for us. Would you stand with me? Next week, we're going to unpack a little more about why it can be so hard to walk into this invitation. So for today, I think the invitation is thus. What does it look like to examine your life before the Lord today? What gospel have you been given? What gospel are you living in? There's these rugs here, a place to get out of your seat, do a little work before the Lord. There are going to be people coming ready to pray with you. And they'll stand ready just to help you ask the Lord, Lord, help me to see, help me perceive the life I'm living. Help me to have the courage to receive this invitation. So however you must respond, I pray that you would respond. And find a Jesus ready to meet with you. I'm going to pray. And then let's move. Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear how you're calling us.
give us a dissatisfaction for the sweet poison of this world. And may your freedom be hunting on our lips. The best kind of sour. Something that calls us into the newness of life. Amen. Amen.